0: we are going live. And uh, good news, folks, that the numbers continue to go down. And you can see here on the New York Times daily tabulation of new reported cases in the United States that we are now in one, two, three, four straight days of declining new reported cases. And, and frankly, the three or four days before that had hit a plateau. So we plateaued. About a week ago over the past half week you've seen declining cases which is one of the reasons we're seeing governors like andrew cuomo in new york saying the worst is over that things are going to get better now things in california are not, not looking quite as good uh, mostly because in the last day we actually had a pretty big uptick in deaths uh, we also had a pretty big update in up, uptick in number of new cases so in california This is the chart in California you can see. um, We did see a decline over most of the past week, most of the past four or five days, but the last day has actually been a bad one. So yesterday we had a pretty big increase in new cases and a significant increase in new deaths, but the general trend is still good. So now is the time I think for us to start talking about how we're gonna get out of lockdown. And I live streamed yesterday and said that I think that if we have the right proposal, we could get out of lockdown in the next month or two. And it's gonna depend a lot on mass testing, right? If we can test enough people, we can get out of lockdown. But I think that one of the most exciting things I've seen recently is a bold new scientific proposal by some researchers at MIT and Harvard, at the Broad Institute, which is sort of a combination of MIT's biology department and Harvard's biology department and medical school that could get us out of lockdown permanently in the span of weeks by exponentially increasing the number of tests we do of COVID-19. And also reducing their costs. But let me jump, let me, I, I think i are getting out ahead of myself a little bit, but because I think we should just start with the basics, which is where are we now and why is it even feasible for us to consider opening up businesses, getting out there in the streets and and, and basically reopening the entire society of, of the world over the next few weeks. And the, the reason is um, actually, let me go to the Johns Hopkins coronavirus case list too. Uh, let's go to Johns Hopkins coronavirus map. So, we're gonna take a look at the coronavirus map that Johns Hopkins has made, which is, in my view, probably the best coronavirus map. And you can see here in the United States, let's see, in the United States, we've seen historically a massive increase in the number of cases. I'm gonna use the logarithmic scale to show the growth, but we're seeing the curve start to flatten, right? And the curve is flattening to the point there are a couple of nations in Europe who are about a week or two ahead of us, who are deciding to reopen their economy, Austria and Spain being some classic examples. So let me go to Austria. And actually, you know what? I'm gonna share this live stream on my personal page. Um, if all of you are watching, the only four people are sharing, if all of you are watching could share this, it would be awesome. But uh, you're actually gonna watch me right now share my own live stream on my own personal page. Uh, so here's how it's done. Let me figure out how to do this. All right, I'm gonna share this. There it is. I This is kind of meta, folks. I'm about to share my own live stream on my own page. Um, Alright, so let's do share how to get out of lockdown in four weeks or less. Bold new research from MIT and Harvard. set us to the path All right, what do y'all think of that headline? Bold new research from MIT and Harvard that can set us to the path of re- uh, Let's just say new research. It's not bold, it's just new research. Okay, how to get a lockdown in four weeks or list. I just posted this to my personal page. Let me just make sure it's actually been shared there. It has, in fact, been shared there. Okay, so, but, um, so here, here's here's the big problem though. So you know we're seeing these decline cases. The curve is flattening. I just showed you the California chart. Here's the nationwide chart. Here's the logarithmic scale from Johns Hopkins. All looks really good, right? Now the big problem though is this. Let's look at California as an example. Uh, I'm going to show you how many confirmed cases we have in California. So let's go to the United States, California. All right. So we have 24,000 confirmed cases in California. And let's say that there are 5x or even 10x as many unconfirmed cases. So the evidence seems to suggest that for every confirmed case of COVID-19, there are about anywhere from four to maybe up to nine unconfirmed cases. In other words, asymptomatic people, people who just didn't get tested. There are a lot of people not getting tested because the government has basically been a disaster. Uh, Actually, I could show you this right now. Um, This number has gotten much, much better over the past few months. But as you can see from this chart, how the U.S. compares to other countries in coronavirus tests, we're still doing far worse than everybody, pretty much, including countries that don't even have much of a pandemic right now. So Canada, for example, and Germany are not suffering nearly as much as the United States, yet they've tested way more people than the U.S. has. And the nations that have tested less than us, for the most part, don't have serious problems with COVID-19. So what, what I, my, the point I'm making is that while we um, have 25,000 confirmed cases in California, there are probably a ton of people who have COVID-19 that we just haven't confirmed by test. And, and let's say that there are 10 people who've had COVID-19 for every one confirmed test, which would mean about 240,000 people in the state of California have had COVID-19. The problem with that is, let's look at the population of California, right? California population. I believe it's something like 25 million. Let's see if I'm, right. oh, no, 40 All right. <laughs> I don't know, 40 million. I do know 40000000 i do not know how it was off by 15 million. All right, so here's the problem, folks. If 250,000 people have caught this disease in California and there are 40 million people in this state, that means the vast majority of people are still susceptible to the disease. In fact, over 99% of people in California are still susceptible. Um, and what that means is, while the numbers are going down, the moment we come out of shelter in place and social distancing, that number is gonna explode again because 99% of people are not immune. And we know this virus has has an infection rate of, you know, for every person who's infected, they infect anywhere from two to as many as five or six other people. So even if we have five people in the state of California left, right? So say that after we get out of shelter in place, we only have five people in the entire state of California who still have COVID-19 after we come out? If those five people infect another five people, and those additional five people all infect another five people, we're going to be back at 25,000 confirmed cases again within the span of weeks. That—that's how fast this disease grows. So that's not a long-term solution. The only long-term solution we have to get out of shelter-in-place is, here it is, mass testing. So. And what this article in Vox says, and Vox has done some of the best coverage of COVID-19, for the record. Everyone should go visit Vox, The New York Times. But by one estimate and by one report, we need 35 million tests per day for people to return to work. And here's the reason why testing is so important. Because if we have five people with the disease after we come out of lockdown, and we don't know they have the disease, then we can't quarantine them, right? And so they're gonna infect five other people who will then infect another five other people and they'll infect another five other people. And before you know it, we got millions of people dead across the entire state and nation, right? But let's say under an alternative hypothesis that instead of those five people infecting five other people, all those five people are identified as having COVID-19. They're quarantined, so they're isolated, you know, with appropriate financial support and medical support. Then those five people, will not spread the disease to anyone, or, you know, better, more realistically, they'll spread the disease to less than one person. So the key, the key threshold is the r not the infection rate. And if we can keep the infection rate under one, in other words, for every person who gets COVID-19, if less than one other people, one other person is infected, then the disease will go down over time. But the only way for us to identify those people and quarantine them and make sure the r not the infection rate goes down to less than one, is for us to test like hell. Just test every single person. So Paul Romer, who's a Nobel Prize winner at NYU, a very famous economist who does a lot of mathematical modeling, has estimated that if we could test 22 million Americans every single day, 22 million Americans every single day, then we could come out of lockdown immediately and we'd be fine because we'd be able to quickly identify virtually everyone has COVID-19, quarantine them and not worry about the spread of this disease. So the big problem then is, how the heck do we test 22 million people every day? And uh, a lot of people have been saying, this just isn't possible, we're not gonna be able to do this. Um, and here, here is what I wanna show all of you, and actually I can't find this now. All right, let me see if I can find this article. Mm. <laughs> uh, I might have to go to, let's see, what is the guy's name? Uh, I know where I can find it. All right, here, here's where I can find it. Uh, blah, 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 where can I find this? I think I can find this if I look at, I think there's a link to this article Ezra Klein, reopen economy. Right, this is where I originally found the test. Okay, so how do we test 22 million people per day? Uh, ba let me find this. Okay, here, here is one of the most fascinating studies that I've read, frankly, in my life, but certainly in the last few weeks. And it's got a, it's got a very wonky-sounding name, and none of you probably understand what the hell this means. In fact, I don't really understand what it means entirely, although I have done some research on it. So you might think, okay, what does this study have to do with anything and shelter in place? Population scale COVID-19 doc- diagnostics using a compressed barcode space. So this is by Jonathan L. Schmidt-Burke and a number of colleagues, most of whom are at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. The Broad Institute is an institute that has housed many Nobel prize-winning um, researchers. It's an incredible place. I was lucky enough to be in Cambridge and I even just walking by the place gave me you know, almost the chills, because I know so much groundbreaking research on aging and disease and cancer has been undertaken at the Broad Institute. Jonathan Schmidt-Burke is one of these uh, super brilliant, super smart, young uh, postdoctoral fellows who's doing research into novel methods for stopping disease spread. And what he's devised is a technique for us to spread uh, testing across the entire population of the United States for $7 per test or less. So at the start of this pandemic, tests have been costing about $200 per person, which means testing 20 million people every day becomes a little hard. But in this research report, Jonathan sets out a methodology for us to test millions and millions of Americans on a regular basis at a cost of $7 or less. Okay, so here it is. We describe the design and validation of the method and simulated barcoding strategies. And I'll talk about the strategy they're gonna use in a bit. And we estimate that the cost per sample will be less than $7 on the list price of off-the-shelf products, products with a potential for a further four-fold cost reduction. So it could get down to as low as one to two dollars per test. And if you're talking about one to two dollars per test, 22 million tests per day, 22 million dollars, suddenly sounds very reasonable, because after all, compared to the entire US economy, spending 22 million dollars a day to reopen the economy is a very good deal. To get people back to work, to prevent people from being evicted, to ensure that people aren't dying, right? That people aren't dying. This is a serious, serious issue. So spending twenty-two million dollars a day is is a very, very good transaction for us, uh, and that's how 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 cheap it's going to be very soon. If and here's the big if: if we start adopting these strategies, and if we push through the political process for our authorities to take these issues very seriously and to make testing the flagship strategy for us to fight this pandemic. But how does this work? Well, um, I'm going to go into some science. Are you okay? With some some wonkiness now. Um, Actually, you know, funny story. I actually for a short period of time worked in a molecular biology lab when I was in high school or between high school and college because my dad was a molecular biologist. He had a colleague and friend who worked at Indiana University in a molecular biology lab. So I know something about these sorts of tests. And I actually ran gel electrophoresis um, samples. I don't even remember what you call it, but basically you send some electricity through this, this this gel, I think it's, I don't remember what the gel is created, and it gives you like a DNA reading that you can then interpret the results of what DNA you have in a particular sample. But the way they're planning to do this is, is twofold. One is the classic way that we determine whether someone has a virus is this um, technique called PCR. Um, and I actually don't even remember what PCR stands for. Let's see if we can find what PCR stands for. PCR amplification, let's just Google PCR. PCR, poly... Polymerase chain reaction. And the idea behind this is, when, when you're trying to test for a virus, you can't test for the entire virus because it's just got too much DNA. What you try and do is find little markers in that virus, little strands of code that are distinct and unique to that virus. It's kind of like you know, your social security number. This is unique to you. And similarly, while viruses have shared traits with many other viruses, and this is why you have families of virus, like the coronavirus family, um, every virus that becomes a pandemic, or doesn't become a pandemic, usually has some unique identifying attributes. And what they do in polymerase chain reaction and in this reverse transcriptase LAMP method, sorry to use fancy scientific jargon, is they basically, first, you have to figure out what that unique identifying code of your virus is, right? And then what they do is they say, okay, we found the unique identifying code of this virus, and, and so when we're testing a sample, let's search for that unique identifying code. And if that unique identifying code exists, let's replicate it a billion-fold. Like let's take that little strand of DNA that we found and create a little molecule that goes in the sample and replicates that, that little strand of DNA a billion-fold to the point that you can pick it up in a gel that you electrocute. So electrocuted gel, you don't electrocute the gel, you send electricity through the gel. Gel does not have feelings as far as I know. Maybe some gels have feelings, but as, as far as I can tell in electrophoresis, the gel that you electrocute does not have feelings. So you're not electrocuting it, you're just sending electricity through the gel. And But this new method of RT-LAMP, um, normally what you have to do is, again, I'm gonna go through some science now. When you heat up DNA, the strands of the DNA, you all know that the double helix has two strands, right? There's two strands in DNA. And normally what you have to do is you have to heat up the DNA and then the the code that you're looking for, you send a little molecule to bind with the DNA in a specific section of the code, and then you have to cool it off, let it kind of fall off the the DNA, and then you replicate the strand. So what RT-LAMP does is it prevents you from having to heat up, cool up, cool down, heat up, cool down the DNA to engage in this replication process. Instead, you just heat it once, the DNA expands a little bit, and it creates these little loops. Um, And that's why the LAMP method, let's look it up on Google, RT lamp. Who knew that this podcast or podcast this uh, live stream is going to become um, a science exercise or a little Bill Nye the science guy replication or you know imitation. So this is why it's called loop mediated isothermal application, lamp. But the basic idea is you break the DNA apart, you add in a little molecule that attaches the DNA when it finds the unique identifying code of the virus and that DNA then creates a little loop. Right? So the, the, the DNA basically, the little molecule the add to the DNA, forms a little loop, which means you don't have to go through these cycles of heating and cooling that are extremely expensive and time-consuming. So anyways, I, the details of this are not important. The key bit of this is that if you take this methodology, not only do you reduce costs because you don't have to do these tests in these fancy labs that are built at you know University of California or Berkeley or Stanford or UCSF or Harvard or MIT. You can actually do them in the field. Right? because you don't have to heat and cool and do all this fancy molecular testing. You just heat it once, and if the, if, if the molecule you insert into the DNA loops and forms this little sub-molecule and it replicates and replicates and replicates, what happens is you create enough of these replications of the unique code of the virus that you can actually see it in the sample. Let me just, let me just clarify that one more time. What happens is you do this loop amplified method of testing for the virus, You drop it into the pool and heat it up to like 70 degrees, 80 degrees Celsius, I think it is. I think that's... I don't have the exact temperature, but it's something like that. So it's not that hot. It's something you could do, you know, in, in the kitchen. And if the virus exists in that sample, it'll replicate so much that you can actually see it in the fluid. It's visually obvious that you have the virus, right? So that makes it fast, right? All you have to do is heat up your sample. It makes it accessible because anyone can do it. You can do it in your own home. And here's the third bit. Um, that if you do this in mass, right? If you do 100,000 samples at a time, which is what this proposal suggests we start doing, then you can do millions and millions of tests at ridiculously low cost, right? Okay, and I think this is the path to get out. So you might be asking if we actually implemented this, how soon can we get out of lockdown? And I think the answer is two weeks because two weeks is the incubation period of coronavirus. And if we started mass testing everyone, and we started reducing the cost of testing to the point that it costs less than $7. If we reduced uh, the barriers to doing tests so that people could do it in their own home, so you could have just a van drop, you drive by, swab your mouth real quick, a medical professional could swab your mouth real quick, drop it in a solution, within 30 minutes, you know, you get a test result. Then we can start testing millions and millions of Americans and we can end this pandemic, or not end the pandemic, but end the lockdown and the immediate economic, financial, and social crisis within a few weeks. So that's a big if. Can we start doing this mass testing? And I know there are a lot of complications to executing a mass testing strategy like this, among other things. You've got to just buy enough swabs. So, you know, I was listening to a podcast with a former head of the FDA who was talking about how it turns out a lot of the bottlenecks in in a mass testing strategy have nothing to do with fancy science. Like, the scientists know how to do this. It has to do with stuff like how do we make enough cotton swabs, right? And you may have heard about the shortage of N95 masks, right? There There was a lot of concern about ventilators and ventilators are a real concern. Ventilators are the devices we hook up to people. If they're under respiratory arrest, they need a machine to breathe for them. But here's a funny fact. We have not actually seen a serious shortage of ventilators in the United States so far, even in New York. Guess what we have seen a shortage of? N95 masks, right? These simple masks that Costs like a few bucks, and are manufactured in China, because they're a low-margin product, and the you know the manufacturing processes for n 95 mass are are not you know and they're not made to expand dramatically. It's been hard to get masks, and and you know everyone's hoarding their masks, and there's no coordinated strategy for us to get masks to the people who need the most, or frankly to get masks to everyone. But ventilators are doing okay, you know the the the, the pharmaceutical companies and the drugs that we need to treat COVID-19, although there's nothing really that treats it very well right now, those companies are doing fine. There's high margin products because they have sophisticated manufacturing technology they're implementing and using because these are high margin products and they can scale up very quickly. It's the low commodity products, the low value commodity products that we need most to implement mass testing. And how do we convince companies to start producing cotton swabs so we can do tests? Well, that's when we need government action because if it's not gonna make a lot of money for the company that's making the cotton swabs, they see no reason to really scale up their product very significantly. In fact, a lot of them probably benefit from not scaling up their product, so their commodity prices start going up, right? If you're you're making cotton swabs and you know it's a low-margin product, but you know there's a shortage of cotton swabs, you almost have an incentive to make sure there continues to be a shortage so you can make as much money as possible. This is what the oil companies do. Every few years when oil prices get too low, they all get together and they collude and say, hey, let's all decide not to produce too much oil So the prices go up and we make more money and we can't allow that to happen with cotton swabs with pipettes with basic commodity level products we need to mass test millions of americans every single day and the only way we can ensure that doesn't happen that these commodities don't become very profitable for the corporations that are making them is for the government to jump in and say i don't care how much money you're going to make i don't care what what profit you think you're going to be able to earn by setting the price at x level or by restricting quantity supplied by X percent, we are in a crisis and we are gonna make as many of these cotton swabs as we possibly can because the country needs them right now. And in fact, there's a precedent for this. There's even a law in the books for it. So I think it's called the Defense Production Act. Let's just make sure I'm right about that. I think it's called the Defense Production Act. Okay. Yes, Defense Production Act of 1950 gives the national government the right to just intervene and say to corporations, You know, I'm sorry, I know you're making Teslas and Lamborghinis right now, but you have to make ventilators. And we can do the same at the local level, too. Governments can just intervene and say, no, at at this point in our nation's history, in our community's history, we need cotton swabs, we need tests, we need medical care, so we're going to retrofit your factory to build us more cotton swabs. We did this in World War II, we needed to build tanks, and if we can nationalize corporations to build tanks, certainly we can nationalize corporations to produce cotton swabs that will save lives. So that's it. Um, if anyone's got any questions, they see Kevin's on the on the podcast or on the podcast. This is actually kind of a podcast too, because Julie's been posting these on Stitcher, I think, and Anchor. Uh, but I see Kevin's sharing. Thank you, remember for sharing. Ke- Julie's on the, on on the live stream. Shalo's on the live stream. I keep going longer than I expect. I wanted to do these for 15 minutes, but I ended up talking for over 20 minutes. But I'm going to try and in the future talk for about 10 minutes and give you all you know five minutes to answer and ask any questions you might have. Barb Nixon is saying, look at Dr. Shiva. He has a lot to say about the inaccuracy of tests. You're right, the tests are inaccurate. So there's a false negative rate of about 20% in the tests that we're currently using. But even with a 20% false negative rate, we're still identifying a lot of people of COVID-19. And more importantly, we're not getting a false positive rate. So you know, when you, when, you, when you test positive, you're pretty guaranteed to have COVID-19. And those are the people we need to identify very quickly and isolate. I'm not seeing any other questions. Um, Julia is saying I can't with the poorly educated in science. I simply can. I'm getting so activated by a thread, a vegan saying how they'd rather have the virus than a vaccine. You know, obviously I don't agree with that. I think we have to take the vaccine when it comes out, but the vaccine isn't going to come out for another couple of weeks. So in the meantime, what we have to do is increase testing. Test, 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 test. And we need to deploy research like this research from Harvard and MIT and frankly invest billions of dollars in scaling up this testing we have to invest that money, because it's gonna save us so much more money, and more importantly, it's gonna save lives. Um, Emek is asking for Julie to share the podcast link. I don't have the link, so I'm gonna let Julie do that. Shiloh is saying you have a lot to say, so don't try to limit yourself. Um, I'm not trying to limit myself. I'm just trying to uh, limit the amount of time per day I spend on social media, because I think 15 minutes is the right amount of time. Not that social media isn't really important, but I have a lot of other things I need to do, including you know, defend myself (laughs) and a bunch of, cases being brought by corporations across the United States of America. So um, I, I wanna try and set the target at 15 minutes and I'll try and do a better job tomorrow. Uh, I'm not seeing any other questions, so thanks to everyone for joining. Please share this live stream. If you haven't shared it yet, click that share button, comment your you're sharing. And if you have any questions later, um, join the live stream tomorrow and ask a question tomorrow. Okay, thanks to everyone and I'll see you tomorrow. Bye. <laughs> Hey, everybody, Wayne here, and I'm so excited you're all listening to this podcast, but I wanted to let you know about some other opportunities to be part of our team. You can go to WayneForMayor.com, sign up for our green team, volunteer to make the first truly green city in the nation, and you can also contribute financially. We are only taking donations from small donors. We need thousands of you to step up to win. I know I can count on you, so please contribute if you can, and every bit does help. Thanks so much, and I'll talk to you again very soon.